It's August 23rd, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to talk about acquisition. We'll start with uh, Skunk Works news. Last week, we were discussing the new automated factory that they just built. But this week, Skunk Works will hand off Aero production to missile and fire control from Air Force Magazine and Aero Force's air-launched rapid response weapon. I believe that's right, the new hypersonic. So... The, the article is saying that Skunk Works itself has the capacity to produce 8 to 12 uh, missiles per year. Uh, when Arrow gets the full rate production, however, it will get handed over to Missiles and Fire Control, their business unit there. And they were saying here, quote, the company is employing a best of breed philosophy using expertise from different divisions to bring Arrow to service. The space division that has extra knowledge in high speed aerodynamics and heat transfer, while Skunk Works has the best in class aerodynamics and missile and fire control has state-of-the-art expertise with boosters. Uh, so it seems like, you know, they're using a best-of-breed approach, assembling it ultimately in uh, Skunk Works. But eventually, who knows, if they can get up to 8 to 12, um, it might be a few years before we really start looking towards handing off the missile and fire control. So this is kind of like a little bit more information, but also uh, forward-looking. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of makes sense to... Um... I think, you know, part of it for the, for the full rate production has to be, you know, located in places that uh, uh, make assembly and be as efficient as possible. So, you know, not doing it at Palmdale, but doing it close to where the rocket bodies are actually produced kind of makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it seems, uh, it seems like Skunk Works being uh, kind of managing this effort and using digital engineering. Uh, it sounds like this is going to be a real test of of how all that comes together, you know, moves into a full rate production uh, kind of activity as, you know, much faster than, you know, our legacy, it's kind of our legacy examples. And, uh, and then allows them, I think one of the other things I, I kind of pulled from this was the fact that, um, uh, that a lot of the digital models that they've developed, you know, it's platform agnostic and can be applied across, you know, all the hypersonic programs. So if, if arrow starts to, to lose kind of the support and it starts to become more like the hawk, the air breathing version, uh, that then they they seem prepared to be able to to pivot to that and then start, you know, working design changes, you know, based on that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, good story. Yeah, that's a that was a really good pickup there. Um, uh, in terms of Lockheed kind of doing some flex, I guess the uh, <laughs> the uh, open source or the uh, modular systems architecture kind of stuff is taking a hold or you know, getting through to the primes. And I think, you know, the, I guess the question is, you know, do they want uh, to kind of own what that architecture is and then kind of lock the government back into themselves, you know, in a different way, uh, but what their kind of enterprise suite rather than, you know, a particular platform. It might also be, if it's not, um, yeah, you're right. It could be that, could be the most of piece. It could also be that a lot of the characteristics of the hypersonics design, the, the aerodynamics and heat transfer and, you know, all the material stuff and, and a lot of the, the, the physics and, you know, the different entry points is a, a lot of that. It, maybe that's a little bit what they're getting at is some of these models, uh, you know, when you start talking about similar materials and similar design characteristics, you can apply those models similarly, even if, even if maybe you have to change a lot of, you know, a lot of pieces of the hardware, uh, you, you can kind of keep, um, keep a lot of that knowledge and apply it in a way that maybe you couldn't do before. I don't know. Yeah, this no, definitely. That. Yeah, we'll see if it works. And next one we got, Space Force awards $32 million in contracts to startups and small businesses from Space News. A virtual pitch event on August 19th, the U.S. Space Force selected 19 companies that will 
received 1.7 million in small business innovation research phase two contracts. The Space Force pitch day launched, uh, marked the launch of SpaceWorks. So SpaceWorks is kind of like the new AFWorks for the US Space Force and uh, 19 companies, 1.7 million each at 32 million. And it looks like there's 24 companies overall. So 19 out of 24, that's a pretty high P win rate there for, for people actually going after Sibbers where some of the other P win guesstimates I've seen out there are kind of like a more of the 20% range. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. I was like, oh, 19 out of 24. That's pretty good. Kind of feel bad if you lost actually, you know, <laughs> they probably knew who they wanted, you know, like through like market research and dealings with AFWorks and, you know, they probably kind of pre-selected. I was kind of thinking that maybe some of the, some of the vendors were in the same space. And so maybe they, maybe they felt they're like too similar. I was thinking, I was thinking maybe that, but yeah, you could be right. But it's, a, you know, if, if you look through the, the winners, it is a, it is a strange brew of, of different things that uh, kind of surprising to me a little bit that they, they all got the same amount of money. Cause you, you have some things that are like long life power cell and batteries, which is like absolutely critical. Uh, I probably would have thrown a lot more money into that basket. And then, and then you have some other stuff, which is software to allow satellites to create a low latency network, which sounds a little bit more kind of basic, um, you know, satellite servicing vehicle for refueling satellites got the same amount of money as some advanced visualization tools for satellite maneuvering. It's like, I don't know, a little surprising because there is a, there is kind of a real range of, uh, of technologies they went after here, but, but pretty intriguing. I uh, hope to, Hope to see a lot of these be successful because a, a lot of potential here. Yeah. And it was interesting that like looking back at that list, it's a smattering across. It's not like they seem to have a target area in mind. It's like anything like in a broad range that's interesting. And so I guess that takes me back to, you know, I guess you're saying there, why didn't they concentrate funds in particular areas that needed more? And I think in general, it's just like, well, the money is so constrained it's almost negligible for any of these firms, right? Like you're not getting to like some kind of um, ready-made product from that for any of these companies. So you might as well just do the one over N rule, right? Which is kind of awesome Taleb and uh, Benoit Mandelbrot's rule for, if you don't really know, then just split your money evenly and invest in all of the options. <laughs> and then when you have more information, right? Then they'll probably like transition to the program of record and they can start putting their monies into it and so forth. Yeah, you, you could be right. That, that that might be that definitely might be part of it. Is there's there's so many needs, right? That they, you know, why not go after some of these and just see see if they can get to the next phase, um, and then maybe you can throw more money at them. Uh, but uh, yeah, one one other thought would be is this was their fir first time out of the shoot. Uh, they wanted to kind of keep keep business, you know, keep them encouraged and motivated <laughs> to work. So you know, maybe they wanted to kind of spread the spread their apple seeds as far as they could before. Uh, you know, maybe the next time they'll, they'll neck it down a little bit more. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the Space Force was talking about like 24Xing its uh, other transactions through its consortia and stuff like that. And I think now like it's free through NSTXL to my knowledge to kind of like join, but like you still got to, you know, pay the dues when you get something. But ultimately, like they want to go do that. And I saw that they had a pretty high stealing on that OTA, but they haven't actually obligated a whole bunch. So Maybe like their talk about buying things as a service and being able to, I don't know, expand the use of OTAs and kind of make that a cultural thing. Maybe that's running into, you know, they're still trying to move that way, but going slower than they might have hoped. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, yeah, I think at Nextel, 
is going to be, yeah, it's going to be used pretty widely. I think there's a lot of planes, just like, just like our spec was, was, you know, they had to increase the ceiling on that multiple times because they kept, they kept throwing more money in that, in that pot. Um, so yeah, I suspect, I suspect it'll probably, probably grow and be a, be a go-to vehicle. Yeah. And actually there's a, there's another article here on the space force kind of presaging this earlier in the week. But one of the interesting things there was Lieutenant Colonel Walter McMillan from SpaceWorks, the SpaceWorks director. He said, we're particularly uh, excited about Space Prime. So there was a bunch of, you know, talk about Agility Prime. We did the, I had the podcast with uh, Nathan Diller, who's running AFWorks and was, we talked about it. But the real idea was there was to kind of get an eVTOL system through kind of commercial channels and make it commercially viable not necessarily thinking about military applications, but, you know, understanding there will probably be a boomerang effect. And I guess there's space prime here. So I don't know exactly what, you know, technology areas or types of companies they will be uh, funding, but it looks like they might take a similar approach where they're really looking for commercial use cases and allowing, you know, companies to use test ranges or other, you know, space force assets to help them you know, move their things along and commercialize and provide some funding, but not a whole ton of funding. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what they come up with on the space prime, because I, I know a lot of the other ones, like you said, have really been targeted about like a new commercial market, uh, really going after something that's uh, pretty novel technology. So I'm kind of interested to see what they apply that to space. You know, will it be something like deep field sensing or, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, maybe post imagery processing or something where you know they can start to use more lower capability satellites to do some of the more higher end stuff like yeah i'm really curious to see where they go with that there's lots of ways they could they could they could or a lot of areas to go after but i'm kind of curious to see what they focus on and that's when we got new u.s air force secretary to shake up advanced battle management program from defense news quote the new U.S. Air Force Secretary says he's skeptical about the current plans to build the service's advanced battle management system, signaling the program could be headed heading for an overhaul. I want to focus it on specific operational return on investment. I want to emphasize fielding, meaningful military capability, not just demonstrations that you show what you could do cool things, but real capability um, in the hands of the operators isn't there. So... This is, of course, Frank Kendall, the new Air Force Secretary. I don't think what he's saying is anything new necessarily. I think it's kind of, um, kind of a rehash of you know what we've been hearing kind of coming out over the past couple of months. But you know, I'm interested to hear what what you have to think about this. Yeah, no, I don't think he's wrong. I, well, for, first off, you know, I think it was kind of interesting. We were kind of debating about like would he jump right into acquisition, given that's kind of his sweet spot. I, I think. I think we have some indication that he's going to keep a steady hand on any acquisition stuff in the Air Force stuff. The first time I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, didn't waste much time getting involved in, in the ABMS uh, discussion. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think his point's valid, right? I mean, that that was a little bit of a challenge with ABMS is that when they when they first started the program, it was all about doing demos. And so they were going at some of these co-coms and demoing uh, certain capabilities to show that they could do it. But I think one of the problems was some of the co-coms were like, yeah, this is great. I, you know, I want this thing now. And then it was like, oh, no, no, that was just a demo. You know, we might be able to do some leave behinds, but we're not going to give you the full thing until, you know, years later. Or something. So I, I like the I like the focus on on the operational uh, piece. I will say I, I think that the way the program is currently budgeted as of the latest budget docs, 
is that there's a lot of infrastructure. And I think that infrastructure piece is really important. Um, all that like secure processing and connectivity, the data management pieces, uh, they, they really do need to be in place. You need to have those, you know, tactical mesh networks and, and things, edge, the, all the edge computing. Um, so yes, it's about, the, it's about the capability, but it's also about getting some of that infrastructure in place that you can then build upon. So, um, so there, there is some capability release, right? I think Dr. Roper, uh, when he looked at this, he saw that the, the C2 node for, you know, connecting the, the tankers to the, to the fifth gen fighters was, was, the, was the most low hanging fruit. And so that is in the plan. Uh, so they are after they are going after some real capability there with the KC forty six, and then you know there's other things planned for the next capability releases. So so capability releases are always in the plan. Um, I'm curious to see what actually changes as a result of of kind of this uh, discussion. Uh, will some of these infrastructure things get pushed uh, out pushed out or uh, traded off for for some near term capability release? And will that be the right way to go instead of really spending all that money? Up front on the infrastructure, and then you can build on top of it. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see see where they uh, what they change in the current plan, um, and what uh, what gets substituted because they probably won't get much more money. I think the Air Force has put as much as they can probably at this pot. So, yeah, more to come. Yeah, I I guess my general impression is like you had Roper and Dunlap. And it seemed like you had these guys that they had all the ask me anythings. And now we have kind of like, it feels like almost like an information lockdown. You know, we haven't seen like the same types of articles and open communication. And I wonder to what degree like that is kind of connected with, you know, ABMS's fall out of favor, or maybe it was never in favor, but yeah, you know, I was just, I was just listening to a, part, a podcast with uh, Varda's co-founder and he was kind of saying like, um, he's repeating something from Peter Thiel, essentially, that deep tech founders, you know, need to be better storytellers and fundraisers, really, than like, you know, SaaS companies, which you really just need like more of a mathematician or a computer scientist, because it's very well understood, you know, and once you and it's easy to get some product demo out to, so that people can like touch and feel it. And so they can very readily kind of start valuing like a SaaS company so that you don't need the storytelling aspect. Um and it's just like, maybe I, I feel like that's almost one of the most important parts of getting Congress on board, because I'm not really sure what their technical capability is to like evaluate, you know, the technology behind it. But it seems like there's definitely a, a storytelling kind of aspect to ABMS that, you know, once it started to get in a little bit of trouble and then they had to restructure it and it kind of lost its ones and you had like kind of the leadership that started out kind of move on, you know, it just seemed like. It kind of was left into the lurch and then, you know, you had a narrative kind of descend upon it right from the outside. So I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, you know, there might have already been pro problems brewing, but, you know, it seems like they were trying to do the right thing with the, with the demos. Um, it's just like this this way to fielding is almost just like a reason of, for people to say, well, tell me how to get to fielding. So now I want you to structure like an old, you know, waterfall program. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right that the messaging, especially since things have changed on it a few times, uh, I would argue that some of those things changed because of congressional pressure. Uh, I, think, I think Congress was a little confused with all the ones and it was a little bit confused about what was, what was going to be demoed and when something was going to be delivered. I think, I think you do have to kind of like juggle 
you know, chew gum and walk at the same time. You like, you do have to do demos, but you also have to be delivering some real value. Um, so I think, I think that's where maybe at the start, ABMS didn't talk enough about the value they were going to deliver. And it was so much more, it, or at least it felt like it was a lot more about the demos. Then Congress got really uncomfortable with that. So they've really had to start to lock down and say, okay, we actually are going to deliver some stuff. And I think now it's kind of even gotten more so, like you said, I think I would expect it to be a little bit more locked down now. Like, I think there's going to be a lot more deliberate decision-making in, okay, we're going to go after edge computing. We're going to go, we're going to go hard after that. And we're going to deliver it to Paycom and Sencom or whatever. And we're going to make sure they have these types of capabilities. So I think you will see that. I suspect that's where it's going. So, yeah. But I, I guess you might see why I always kind of come back to an acquisition organization based on or like a process based on organization and people rather than programs, because it's like, you know, ultimately I think what, what people are saying is whoever had the founding vision of ABMS, they didn't have the right vision or they didn't have a complete vision or it wasn't well thought through and they had no idea how they would get to fielding and you know, what the unit economics looked like and how you can kind of price that stuff out. Um, right. And it's just like, well, was there not that or, was there actually a pretty good vision that it was just not communicated in, in the right way? And the demonstrations, of course, a demo is the first step on the way of, you know, fielding something, right? And so it's like, I don't necessarily see demos as a bad thing. Like, can they built on, you know, do you have a Spartan capable set of people and can you give them slack to run because, you know, you can put pressure test them and they have good answers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's kind of weird to say like I should know more than you about your business or like what's the founding <laughs> about the founding logic behind something. No, I think you're right. I think that was exactly the, the thing was the idea was that industry probably could come to the table with solutions and it was better better not it was better for DoD not to try to kind of try to lock down requirements and uh, try to constrain the, the the solution space and so it was more open wide open field. The idea was just like, you know, you would have the government controlling the architecture. Uh, and yeah, you could be, you could be right. Maybe that was the right way to go and maybe locking, locking it down and constraining uh, the program a little bit to having to deliver something uh, maybe suboptimal, maybe, maybe that will be looked upon later as, you know, maybe we shouldn't have gone this way, but yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see. It's hard to tell. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things, a lot of counterfactuals about, you know, if we had stayed the original course of the one. Would that have been better? And so it'll probably be hard to really suss out which way it was right, um, unless it totally fails or something. You know? Yeah. Well, this will be an ongoing saga of the Jad C2, you know, yeah. portfolio. So <laughs> sure we'll talk about it again. Next, what we got China forecast beginning of shipping, shipbuilding boom, maritime executive. Uh, so a Chinese organization reported that the country's shipbuilders received orders of 28.39 million deadweight tons in 2021 so far, which amounted to more than 40% of the total orders placed during the period in the world, presumably. Uh, they said the Chinese yards delivered 23.18 million deadweight tons in the first half of 2021, uh, both for domestic and international ship owners, which was more than 47% of total ships delivered in 2021. Steel, which is, accounts for more than 20% of total shipbuilding costs, is the costliest component of construction, um, and they said, citing a 50% increase in costs in 2021. So not only is there kind of you know, inflation in, in the inputs here in terms of raw materials to the shipbuilding process, um, China 
is also just has a booming, I guess, shipbuilding industry. And they're accounting for nearly half in some cases of total world production. So I know that puts a China scare watch on the map. Yeah. And I mean, I think for this one, it's more of a, uh, it just seems to me like a huge lost opportunity that the, that the U S has such little presence in the, uh, the, the large, you know, um, shipping container uh, shipping business, because, uh, yeah, it just seems like, you know, this, this is something it's not going to go, the world's not going to do less, right. Let's trade. And, and, you know, there's not, demand's not going to decrease for container ships in your future. I and mean, there's always been a shortage. So yeah, it's a little bit of a shame that the U S isn't playing a bigger role. Uh, one thing I did take away from this is the fact that they, they weren't just, you know, they weren't just making improvements, just, you know, building like simple capacity, but they're actually kind of positioning themselves for the future. And I think it's not that dissimilar from what China did with like solar panels, where they pretty much are just dominating the market uh, for solar panel production, like getting more and more high quality and more efficient processes. And some of the new technologies that they say they were working on there were like, you know, looking at the green transformation in the shipping industry and we're doing work with alternative fuels, you know, engines powered by pneumonia, liquefied natural gas, methanol, hydrogen, and then also advanced manufacturing techniques. So they definitely have their eye on kind of the high-end ship market. And, you know, you can see that 47% kind of growing, right? Uh, and, and they're actually, uh, you know, doing a venture with uh, Japan's Kawasaki Heavy Industries. So they're working together with Japan in the same, uh, on the same kind of uh, solutions. So yeah, definitely China seems to have seems to be looking uh, to, to the future and kind of making those investments, those smart investments. And wish I could say the U.S. was doing more of that. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, South Korea and Japan are the other big ones, and they've been kind of receding at China's uh, behest. It was actually when you look at the shipbuilding over time, I think I saw a chart a little while ago. It's like the only time you, the U.S. was really like a big world shipbuilder was like World War II. It's just like 90% World War II or something like that. But then after that, it, it, it was pretty low. Yeah. What if we had those, what if we had those same shipyards, you know, like we had those shipyards in the Pacific Northwest and California. I mean, what if we, what if we could reactivate them and actually like, it would be a huge jobs, job builder. Like I, I'm yeah, a little but is it an efficient no. allocation of funds in a capitalist society. Yeah. Yeah. I guess not. You could say like, well, it's a national security thing. So we need to bring those types of manufacturers back, but that would ultimately just raise prices for consumers. Right. And lower overall welfare. So there's definitely a trade-off in, in that. I do wonder though, you know, like when we, we've been talking about kind of the current shipyards, if you actually started, if you build a shipyard from scratch now, I mean, no doubt, the, probably the environmental reviews and things like that would, would, would be Kill you. nightmarish. But, um, but if, if you get past that and you could use all the latest and greatest, you know, additive manufacturing, digital engineering, like, Use all of the, you know, all the latest and greatest. Define shipbuilding get. factory. Yeah, like just think about like how you could just you could just you know everything everything top notch. It, it could be a real model. I mean, it sounds sort of like that's what China's doing, but but yeah. Yeah, but the problem is such a company would well basically rely on the U.S. Navy, right? Like, do you think they would be able to claw back the commercial market? That's a pretty big, pretty big ask to investors. I think the cost is probably prohibitive. It's sort of like a nuclear plant. Like you, you kind of have to have government probably support it to some extent to get it going. 
Um, yeah, it, but do you yeah. think there would ever be like commercial interest in such a thing where it's uh-huh. like you would have to forecast like I'm going to be making commercial sales, right? Uh, or else they probably wouldn't be too interested. Yeah, I don't know why they're, you know, I'm a little surprised that, that somebody doesn't get in the market. I have to imagine it probably is as environmental things in this and the, the, the cost, the barrier to entry is so high that to, to, to start a shipyard from scratch that they just can't see the, the business case for it. Um, I have to imagine it's that because, I mean, the market doesn't seem to be going down. seems like there's going to be a lot more opportunities there, but it must just be, you know, companies that maybe have looked at it just said, oh, that's just too much or they can't get the financing for it or something. Yeah. It's got to be a reason. All right. Next one we got here. What is federated learning from VentureBeat? The main idea behind federated learning is to train machine learning models using on user data without the need to transfer that data to cloud servers. Federated learning starts with base machine learning model in the cloud server. This model is either trained on public data or has not been trained at all. And then they train the data uh, or they train the model on the data's from the local device. After training, they return the trained model to the server. And once the server receives the model from the user devices, it updates the base model with aggregate parameter value of the user trained models. So basically, instead of moving data back and forth from the user to a central storage area and have one giant you know, world model that's the best that's on everyone's device, um, instead, everyone's kind of getting a base model. They train it locally on the edge as it were and then they send that trained model back and then the company actually takes just the trained models themselves and is able to optimize across them and create like a super model essentially and then feed that back and then they can get a flywheel going so it seems like this ultimately makes sense from a commercial standpoint but also from a a dod standpoint because you know i think the edge requirements for dod are just going to be much greater um, relative to a commercial environment. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I, I have to admit, I'm probably not smart enough, but the way the way they talked about it, like once trained, they encode the statistical patterns of the data in numerical parameters. That that's like a sentence that I I probably am not smart enough to understand, but kind of interesting. I guess it's maybe almost like meta, metadata or something where you don't need all the raw data, but you need like attributes of the data to kind of do the inference and and kind of build the build the model or build the, the uh, uh, yeah, the machine learning algorithm or whatever, but, uh, yeah, no, definitely seems like it has a lot of applications, especially for like sensitive data and definitely something DOD, uh, has to, has to deal with. So yeah, kind of interesting. I wonder, one thing that occurred to me is, could you do it with classified data where like, uh, the, the statistical pattern, you could actually, you know, uh, encode some of those statistical patterns of classified data, but because it wasn't the raw all user data, it wouldn't have the same level of classification. I wonder if we'll get there at some point in the future when, when AI ML kind of is a little bit more dominant, um, where you, you 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 don't actually have to classify these algorithms, but they can they can kind of just you know train train on a classified server and then move offline and be on on class. So I don't know. I guess we'll we'll see where that goes. One thing I did pick up on this article though is that um, you know if the model is too large, uh, then the developer kind of does need to default to the traditional process. And, and so maybe it puts you back where the, the model has to be of a certain size that it can easily kind of, you know, uh, transfer back and forth. You know, it may not be timely if you have a really complex model. And I am thinking for, for some of the DOD things, it's probably not necessary. You probably do start to get in some things with mission, you know, mission stuff where you're trying to run multiple scenarios of 
different mission, uh, you know, uh, missions you could run and, and doing uh, trade-off and COAs and stuff that could get kind of complicated. So I guess we'll see what, what is too large and, you know, where, where the size limit is here. The other piece that I kind of picked up on was that this does kind of require trust in the data on the device. So you have to kind of, uh, you kind of have to have a certain level of, of clean data for it to be useful. If there's a lot of gaps or, you know, uh, things that, um, things that are, you know, uh, inconsistent data, then you can actually train the model on your, your, what they call irrelevant data, which can do more harm than good, they say. So yeah, that will be one thing is I am really skeptical about as we go out to COCOMs and it's part of the Jake Ada groups and stuff, I'm really skeptical about the quality of data because so much of it is hand jammed in different, different people and, you know, how, how consistent is the training? Every database I've ever seen in DOD has had lots of inconsistencies. So I'm a little skeptical of like how, how well we can clean data to really uh, take advantage of this. It might take us some time to get to a point where we have we have all the relevant data and it's trustworthy and you can kind of do these um you know these next level kind of ai things but yeah anyway a couple of faults there yeah i mean it, it it strikes me as correct that you probably need some kind of good sensor fusion you know on on the edge device right as as you were saying because if you're just like collecting this and that from here and there and you rely on hand jamming or third-party processes, like those things aren't going to feed back to, to like the most useful models. You kind of have to have the, like the whole thing together. So yeah, definitely some challenges looking forward to there. I don't think uh, the Jake is necessarily that far along, but you know, we'll, we'll keep our eye on it, of course. Uh, so the next one we got here, Chaos Continues at Boeing from the Motley Fool. The next generation 777X uh, was supposed to receive demand from large passenger jets. However, while the first deliver delivery was originally scheduled for 2020, it was delayed to the late 2023 earlier this year. Even hitting that target may be impossible. Meanwhile, the 787 Dreamliner has experienced a series of production miscues. Uh, Boeing has periodically identified new manufacturing flaws over the past year, forcing it to halt deliveries again and again. Just It delivered just two 787s in the first quarter. And then, so th that's definitely on the commercial side, but uh, don't forget on the government side that you also have KC-46, the SLS and the Starliner capsule kind of fiascos going on. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the chaos is on the, on the commercial side as well as the government side. And I wonder to what degree those are interrelated, maybe or not, you know, <laughs> overall but definitely has a big bearing on, on the future of this um, massive company here that used to be known for its engineering expertise, right? And I think it still is, um, but definitely has some public perception issues. Yeah, no doubt. They've definitely sort of uh, tarnished their image as, as like a, the premier aerospace sort of uh, manufacturer and designer. But, you know, I think part of it might be that they just they had so many things happen at once and it kind of like, each, each like major issue sucked up so much of their energy that I think maybe it pulled focus from other things. And then it just became this compounding kind of issue because I have a couple of friends that work there. And, you know, when, when there was the issue with the MCAS, you know, software, you know, people got pulled from all over the place to go work that, that was the priority. Uh, and then, you know, then you start to see some of these other things where are like, okay, now the 777 is not, 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 uh, not on schedule. And then, you know, 
uh, you have other issues with uh, the VC 46 and Starliner. So yeah, I kind of wonder if it's not like a <laughs> management is getting pulled in a million different directions and, and it's just like hard to tackle all these problems at once. So hopefully they're coming to a more stable place. The one, um, yeah, definitely not, definitely not promising on the seven, seven, the triple seven, uh, given that the FAA is slowing their certification process and they still have a lot of unaddressed problems uh, that are still hanging out there. Um, but yeah, I did take note that they have had some successes, so can't look at them all being uh, everything going downward for them. They did win several big orders for the 737 MAX, uh, one for the 200 MAX 8s and the MAX 10s. So, and, and they seem to be on projection to return to profitability uh, or they, they did return to profitability last quarter. So, so yeah, hopefully they're, they're finding their glide path and they're, they're uh, you know, no pun intended, and they're, they're getting back on track and, they won't have quite so many issues on every single platform they're going after. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But it was definitely true. It seemed like that, uh, well, Boeing, obviously they had the, the larger commercial market. They took a bigger hit, you know, last year in, in their stock price. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that rebounds. Uh, next one we got Alice is dying. Long live F5's Odin from breaking defense. Between April and May, Pax River testers evaluated the most recent software release of the F designed for the original Alice standard operating units, SOUs, and the Odin base kits. The Odin base kits is 30% cheaper, 75% smaller, and 90% lighter than the Alice SOU, according to the Joint Program Office. Also, it cuts processing times by as much as 50%. Odin has been installed in two squadrons, and there's 12 additional deployments planned to be finished in 2022. So the, the long heard about Odin is now kind of getting deployed, and we're, we're hearing Pretty good things about it. A little bit cheaper, but a lot smaller, a lot lighter, um, and faster. Um, I guess the real thing to understand, though, is kind of the user satisfaction because it seemed like it was creating a lot of errors and you know just confusing for people to use. So um, I guess we'll we'll hear more about it as it gets deployed. Yeah, Odin definitely uh, took a different approach. Uh, Alice was very, you know, was very kind of mission oriented and developed, you know, kind of specific for the effort. Odin took a much more COTS approach, so not probably not surprising that it's uh, you know a lot cheaper and smaller because uh, they're they're taking advantage of kind of the latest advances. Uh, you know, one of the things is even with Odin um, maybe having some issues, it is it is designed. I will say it's set up to be a much more iterative, and it's using DevSecOps and you know kind of using all all the all the things that we we talk about here. Um, you know, it's, it's really aligned to that, to the modern, modern uh, methods. And so, you know, whatever issues do come up, they are more, they are poised to be able to respond to them a lot faster uh, than the way Alice was designed. So I'm confident that, that Odin will, uh, uh, will eventually sort of replace all the, the Alice terminals that have already been, already been fielded. I, I did find it interesting. This is just a classic program manager kind of dilemma. It's like you leave anything in the field long enough and the users start to get used to it and they know how to make it work. They don't want it replaced. So I, I kind of had to laugh at the one line where the users are like, wait a second, don't, don't take away our Alice terminals. We just figured out how to use them. It's just such a classic, classic thing. But uh, so they'll have, to, they'll have to rip those from the poor maintainer's hands probably. Like, <laughs> no, not a new thing to get trained on. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, this is, I think this is a good, this is a really good thing. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's always one of the, 
the hard parts, right? Because it's usually the way the acquisition process works is just like, all right, guys, here it is, it, right? Like you're transitioning and here's like the, the sustainment plan and all of that kind of stuff. And here's how you use it. Whereas I feel like it needs to be like a slower process where you introduce the new thing and slowly and kind of like get user feedback. And, you know, they should have probably been deploying Odin maybe like a year ago, potentially, right? Because they were doing some of the DevSecOps, right? So they should have been able to kind of uh, get an ATO on that and then start showing some things. And then like the users themselves would kind of decide like, oh yeah, like this is easier to use and I see where it's going and it will, I'll still have to do some things on Alice, but, you know, eventually I'll be able to move over most or all of it to, to the new thing. And I guess that kind of follows the way that Kessel Run was trying to do it with, uh, with the AOC, right? Yeah. And when I think they are doing that now, I mean, I think it took them a little bit of time to make it so that it was easy to set up. I think they were talking about, you know, they could, they, the setup time was, was a fraction um, of, of what it was for Alice. And uh, Alice was really, really painful. So the setup time was a lot easier. So I think it took them a little while to get there to, to make it so that it was so configurable. Uh, and now they are fielding it right to a couple of different sites. And I'm sure that they will get tons of feedback that they'll have to incorporate for kind of the next iteration. So, yeah, so the, these guys will, yeah, I see what you're saying about a dual. I mean, that's kind of done for some systems that like have a super high reliability where they, you know, I can't have one system go down, like where they'll, they'll, they'll actually deploy both kind of a shadow system. And so operators will be on the shadow system, kind of getting used to it, giving feedback while having the other system. I don't know if that's actually being done here or if it's kind of like, yeah, you get Odin and, you know, you guys keep Alice for a little while and then eventually we're going to take it away from you or, yeah, not sure exactly how they how they fielded it, but um, but yeah, definitely. I think it's now now it seems so configurable and with all these advantages that you know you can see this fielding the, these kits start to be de, you know start to be developed a lot faster and get out there, and then Alice just becomes forgotten. So um, may happen. It may happen so fast you don't even need to do the, the shadow system approach. This <laughs> will say. All right, next one we got. The Federal Trade Commission chair appears skeptical of proposed Lockheed Aerojet merger from Space News. Lena Khan expressed concern about vertical mergers where a large corporation seeks to acquire a major supplier. Khan's views on defense industry consolidation were laid out in an August 6th letter to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who opposes the Lockheed Aerojet merger and has been a longtime critic of the defense industry consolidation. Now, of course, Raytheon Technologies, headquartered in Warren's home state, said it would challenge the merger. Rocket Aerojet, Aerojet Rocketdyne engines are used by both Raytheon and Lockheed Martin in their tactical and strategic missiles. Lockheed Martin said the merger should follow the same template as Northrop Grumman's acquisition of 2018 of the socket ro solid rocket motor manufacturer Orbital ATK, which in, in its event included essentially clauses that they would be equal suppliers to, you know, either of the two majors, right? So, so Northrop Grumman basically said, when we buy Orbital ATK, we promise that Orbital ATK will still sell to Boeing, right? And not like bias it against like winning the GBSD, for example, contract. Um, anyway, so that one went through. This is a very similar look here with Lockheed looking for Aerojet, but this time it looks like it might, it seems like it might not go through. Right. Um, in this in this case, and I think it really has to do with Lena Khan's conception of power as opposed to, you know, market consolidation type or like traditional notions of of industry mergers. So 
Oh, I guess we'll, we'll see whether it goes through or not, but this will be a big one. And I think, uh, you know, new Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is also against the, the former Lockheed Orbital AT or Northrop Grumman Orbital ATK. So he might be against the new Lockheed Aerojet, but I haven't heard anything on that yet. Yeah. And ultimately it probably, yeah, probably won't be his call. He may, he may definitely have some, some play or, you know, some, some power to uh, give a recommendation, but um yeah, this is this is where it's really a shame that there's not a, a, an ANAS uh, political appointee in place who could really look at all the um, uh, you know all the details here because I think one thing would be interesting is how Northrop Grumman and or- Orbital the when, when they bought Orbital or ATK how that's working right I mean are there are there any issues are they seeing um, you know things in agreements that maybe you know present present issue or, you know, potential risks, you know, in, in the future, or, you know, have they seen any kind of relationship kind of breakdowns where, I, I don't know, it seems like there's a lot of trust here, right? Like these behavioral remedies, one, one thing I'm not clear on it is, is, is a behavioral remedy violation enough to go to court and win? Um, or what if they meet the intent of it? This is what I'm kind of thinking is like, you, you could probably meet the letter of the law or the letter of the behavioral remedy, but also kind of disadvantage somebody by, yeah, 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 we'll give you those engines, but we'll delay them, you know, two months more than we do our prime, the, the prime, you know, our, our, our vertically integrated uh, sector. And so, you know, there's a lot of gamemanship, I feel like that could be, could be done with the behavioral remedies piece. Uh, but I don't know enough to really, I don't have the data or anything to say that, but it does strike me as, it does strike me as risky, like just, just cramming these companies and making them bigger and bigger. And then all they do anyway, is they break them, break them out into sectors that are individually managed, right? Almost like separate companies. So I don't know. they pride themselves on that too. Right. Cause they know they're so right. big. They're like, yeah, we like to operate these profit and loss centers. Right. And they're like, they manage themselves. Yeah. So yeah, hard to say. It, one thing that does strike me is if they really did let that go through for Northrop and Orbital ATK, this right. one just seems so similar. It, it almost is like a major inconsistency if you say, "Oh no, no, you guys, Rocket Aerojet can't do this," you know. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I guess you got to draw a line in the sand somewhere. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Lena Khan basically said there she was like. Well, the DOD can say what it wants, but ultimately I can like veto them and you know, stop yeah. this thing, yeah. uh, which is amazing. And she's a very, she's awfully young. I think she's just like, you know, 30 something to, to be in that position. But well, it's also true of like Cythius, like Cythius, it's ultimately the Department of Commerce that makes the call, but they, you know, they typically take the DOD's recommendation, right? So it's kind of like, it seems to be one of those things where she would probably break a lot of precedent if DOD came out with a a very firm position and she was like nope <laughs> so yeah i guess we'll see how that goes but there's no political in dod so perhaps probably doesn't have an equal equal player to uh, you know to go against yeah yeah i also feel like with all the interesting stuff going on in launch and you know i, I get that doing a lot of non-commercial type stuff that they're probably not going after but you could almost make the case like hey you know there's there is a lot of competition out there you know when you look at it and like if you're someone in orbital ATK or even Lockheed Martin, maybe some of these guys are looking pretty scary on the space side. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Next one we got here. This one's going to be really hard to excerpt. This time 
Time to change our future. Thurgood pledges army acquisition speed transparency from breaking defense. Did did you read this one? I did. Yeah. Yeah. How would you how would you kind of like uh, summarize it? Because it's basically here's my summary, and then I want you to give your summary. So okay. Lieutenant General Neil, Neil Thurgood basically somewhere he he gets a mandate to basically go get hypersonic weapons fielded in like five years, and he's like, yes, sir. And so he then tries to drive, you know, a bunch of stuff. But in, in terms of acquisition, he kind of brings a bunch of big primes together, um, you know, integrates the schedules and integrates their working, you know, all of their technical plans. And then he also goes after uh, kind of like new startup types with the Ricto in terms of onboarding new guys. And, and then Bill Greenwalk kind of comes in at the end and he's like, yeah, it sounds great, but will Congress and the Army actually give him the, enough like funding and managerial flexibility to actually pick winners at scale and innovate faster? Uh, so that's my summary. It was kind of interesting. I, I just uh, I didn't really know what to make of it all. Yeah, no, there was a lot going on there, and I think it has to be. Um, I mean, I think that the the idea with the with the integrated master schedules is that um, they. They're going to need to work together, right? Like, especially with these companies that they're funding, these smaller companies, uh, this is a pretty high-end system. And the requirements are going to be pretty tough to, to meet on this, uh, given that they want it like mobile and, you know, the range of 2,700 mile, uh, kilometers. Uh, so it's, and it's, and it's a very expensive thing too, right? Like to, to scale this and to, um, to be able to kind of deliver the way that it seem, it'll seem like the Army the, the demand signal is that the army currently has. So they're going to need these big primes to play a heavy role to do all that integration. And, you know, it's kind of good that they've gotten them to all work together so that they're being transparent. If that is actually working and it's consistent, that's a huge, huge hurdle. And then you can kind of bring in the army's rapid capabilities and critical technologies office and, you know, finds other ideas and go back and kind of inject them in and say, Hey, okay, uh, we have we have this other thing that this this actually could really help us burn down risk in this area. You know, now that you have a you know a consolidated site picture, you can actually see where your real risks are. So it's complicated. It sounds very complicated. It sounds like it's a management nightmare. But if they really can pull this off, it will be a new model for um, for how to do a really complicated system. So so yeah, I hope they I hope they can do it. Um, you know, I think Bill brings up a great point that even if Congress does give them enough flexibility, which we'll see, you know, they, they really are, he's kind of putting a lot of eggs in this basket in this approach. And so, you know, if, if all these smallest come in and they all do all these great things, but they don't really ever get to compete or ever really get any real business, then, you know, I think we'll have showed our hand and, and these the people in this business will say, yeah, we don't need to work with the ID. We're going to go focus in other areas. So so yeah, it is an opportunity, but it's also, you know, comes with some risk. I, I will say the one thing I did look a little bit more into this whole concept, this long range hypersonic weapon and the capabilities of it, Eric. And uh, yeah, it's funny. It goes back to our original conversation. We had uh, two, maybe two months ago now about General Ray saying, you know, it's so stupid for the army to do this. And I was kind of, you know, being a little bit more like, yeah, there's probably a, probably a role here. So I, w- I was looking at the range of these things, which are, 2,200 kilometers, and they talk about CZs being able to land and drop these things off, but 2,700 kilometers, the only real U.S. territory in that area is that, that you could put these offensive weapons 
is, uh, is Guam. And Guam is 4,700 kilometers away. So no go for Guam. You have to get closer. You have to get into the first island chain. And so Korea has basically said no to any offensive systems. They've allowed some defensive systems. But it's it does require for this to really be, be like a capable thing for the Pacific, you really have to, to, to put this somewhere in that first island chain, you know, in Japan or Korea, or um, I don't even know if Philippines might even be too far. So it is kind of interesting to me about how they're putting a lot of eggs in this basket. And these things are going to be like 30 to 40 million or 40 to 50 million each, each of these missiles. So very, very expensive. I mean, almost you do a few of these, you got a bomber, get a stealth bomber, you know? So I don't know, this will be, this will be one to watch. I would not be surprised if this kind of like goes on for a little bit and then dies in the next year or so. I don't know. I I think that, I think the proposition for it and the cost of it, it might get traded off for something that's a little bit more achievable and maybe makes more sense operationally, but yeah. So anyway, I dug into that a little bit and I'm still not sure how they're why they're spending so much uh, effort and time and, and money to go after this capability. So yeah. there's my summary. Sorry. Of course, you know, like the early ballistic missiles, they never, they, they like started out with just like a fraction of the range. Right. And then they, they eventually got there. Yeah. So I don't know if they like undershot the, the range requirement to something that was realistic and then like, let's, we'll figure it out, you know, as we go along. But um, yeah, I, I am wondering about how this, will, this approach will really, Kind of work out because it seems like you probably want to put you know fair amount of money into different places rather than going all in with the traditionals on like an evms approach <laughs> you know it's like i don't i don't see what the the whole beginning part was about where they're talking about doing stuff fast and, and in new ways because it's like speed and transparency like an evms like i'm not really i, I get why you might say that but and a lot of people will say EVMS should never go away, but that just ain't my view. Yeah, I hear you. That is, you're right. That is a little inconsistent. And I think it's not like you can't expect these small companies either to do this whole program. So it's not like you would replace a major prime with some small non-traditional and be like, okay, it's all yours, you know, go build this, real, you know? So yeah, is this, how flexible is that EVMS system? Like, think, can they, can they flex the, the, the cost accounts and be like, okay, we're changing scope here. We have a new, we have a new plan. Let's update the IMS, update all your cost accounts, you know, like how fast can they do that? Um, are they, are they adaptive or does it require like six months of pain to, to kind of make any change? Well, if you're making those changes, then what was the point of baselining it in the first time in the first place in order to measure progress to something? Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a logical, it's like a logical paradox in terms of like EVMS it, and like, you know, iterative development. <laughs> so uh, we'll move on from that. Uh, General Dynamics opens new unmanned underwater vehicle manufacturing center from Defense News, a $30 million investment in Massachusetts, which uh, actually General Dynamics here and a little bit more on what they're building. In 2019, General Dynamics was awarded a low rate initial production contract for Knifefish, which is based on a 21 inch diameter version of the Bluefin Robotics UUV which went to customers like Australia's Navy. John Dynamics bought the Bluefin Robotics in 2016 after partnering with the company on its Bluefin 21, and that is the base for the Knifefish. And the Knifefish refers to the specific configuration with which the Navy's sensors 
uh, for mine countermeasures will be used. And so more investment, I think we talked a little bit about Huntington Angles also building, you know, and investing in a manufacturing center for unmanned underwater vehicles. So, you know, even if the money's not flowing from uh, Congress yet, which has been skeptical in the last couple of years and slashed those budgets, uh, it looks like the, the companies are, are getting the right signals from the Navy that they're making their investments. Yeah, there has to be some confidence too, uh, given that this is the, uh, the these 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 uh, this this uh, this particular manufacturing uh, center will actually be producing the countermeasures mission package, uh, mine countermeasures mission package for the littoral combat ship. So you know they're uh, uh, they have a lot of skin in that game, it seems. And I I really do love where they're going now. I love like love their vision statement for. We strongly believe that the era of maritime autonomy is very much upon us. <laughs> it's just like a great quote. Um, and yeah, the ability to make, you know, to do unmanned system production is, it's going to be something that, that persists, right? It's going to, it's going to grow. It's going to become, it's going to become like the basis of most of new, any new maritime requirements is there's going to be an unmanned aspect to it. Um, and so I think they're, I think they're putting their eggs in the right basket, especially, especially given that, they, some of these uh, UUVs that they're developing have a commercial side to them, uh, you know, so really focusing on that ISR piece to be able to, you know, if you're searching for mines, you know, you can also search for, you can also use those same centers to, you know, search for things on the ocean floor. So, you know, you could see, you know, scientists using it for geographic stuff. You could see, you know, uh, you know, like treasure hunting and, you know, lost items and exploration and all that stuff. So there's, they're, they seem to have a, they seem to have a good kind of vision for, you know, keeping keeping up with the Navy demand, and then you know if they need to, they can pivot more to the commercial side, you know, as things as more opportunities present themselves there. So, yeah, it seems it seems like a seems like a worthy investment. I hope, uh, hope the Navy take it, takes advantage of it. And some as for some Navy internal investment, U.S. Navy investing 1.7 billion to improve Portsmouth Naval Shipyard from Naval News. The seven-year project as part of the Navy's comprehensive SIOP or Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Program will construct an addition to, dock, to Dry Dock 1, um, enhancing the 221-year-old shipyard's ability to handle multiple Los Angeles-class and Virginia-class submarines. And I believe it's you know the, the need for these bigger dry docks as well as the additional equipment that they'll be getting is the, the Virginia-class Block 5, I think, is a little bit bigger and uh, it actually has to get like super flooded in, in the current uh, shipyards. But so there's, I think the, the PSYOP was supposed to be 30 billion to my recollection or so. So here's, you know, some, some inklings of where the money will start to be going. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like it's a lot of basic, kind of your basic stuff in the shipyard here. Nothing, uh, nothing too kind of cutting edge, but just getting all the <laughs> concrete floors, walls, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. I think there's a lot of that, just that basic and, you know, like optimization of like the layout, that kind of stuff that just needs to be done. So, so we'll move on to mission, not so impossible. This, why this hypersonic weapon will change warfare. So we'll just circle back to the army's, uh, LRHW long range hypersonic weapon. It's actually now called the dark Eagle and it's slated to be ready by 2023. And uh, of course, as we've said before, the all-up round is a 34-inch booster, and it will be common between the Army and the Navy. So that's why, you know, I was kind of thinking it potentially wouldn't get the chop necessarily because it's also, it's, it's got a lot of uh, overlap with the Navy. So I wonder how much, you know, of the total effort 
for LRHW plus, you know, the Navy's variant is going to be actually, um, you know, on the army side, but so it will be, so we will shoot, they say, uh, the exact same thing. The Navy shoots out of a sub or a ship and it will be transportable on an air force C-17 Globemaster three is intended to be road mobile. Uh, the LRHW is such that it can hold targets at risk for multiple, uh, changing locations to a uh, maximize surprise and speed of attack so here's a little bit more on, on the dark eagle i guess we can kind of start calling it that other than the lrhw but i think the lrhw will stick around for a while but it seems like again here that they have a bunch of random requirements like okay it needs to be transportable aboard a c-17 i get it but if you want something that's like completely new in 2023 how about get something that works and then we could kind of like figure out how, how we get it road mobile. I don't know if you, you probably need to build a lot of that stuff in, especially to be fitted on a C-17, but, you know, I wonder what the requirements creep was on, on this as well. Kind of going back to the whole IMS and EVMS thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how challenging it makes it to be transportable. C-17 is pretty, pretty generous. Um, this package does seem like it's, you know, they do, they do have like, you know, I think they already seem to have specs for, for how it's packaged. And, you know, it's, it's a, if it's road mobile, you can probably kind of detach some things and, and put them in separate containers and stuff. So I don't know how much of a challenge that is to get it on the C-17, but yeah, it definitely seems like to make it road mobile, you got to have the right. These are the, the things that I think always make acquisitions kind of tricky is like, you know, has to be road mobile. Like you have to define what that means, right? Like, well, can it go up the, you know, what's the incline of a road it can go up without tipping over and blowing up and killing everybody or, you know, what, uh, how fast does it need to go? Like I, the road mobile piece actually scares me more than like getting it on the C-17. Uh, but then again, I just keep going back to like, where are you going to drop these things off at? Like I drop them off in, uh, you know, you're going to drop them off in a country that doesn't know they're coming. Like, you know what I mean? Or, you know, as soon as you launch them from a country, that country is now going to be a target. Um, and so, so I, you're I saying keep, it makes the most sense just for the Navy to yeah, have the army. We're, we're building a bunch of subs, just put them on subs and we can launch them from the subs and the sub can go, you know, go, you know, jump away and do its thing. So I, yeah, I still, I still just question the whole logistics and operational concept. I mean, there got it. There's army people way smarter than me. So I assume they've figured something out, but I kind of keep going back to general race thing about where you stick this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, of course, the Navy with this naval strike missile, but uh, which I think is the the equivalent, right, of the LRHW. Yeah. If we're talking. Remember, we we're talking about this that they're they're going to let the Marines kind of put it on a JLTV, and that would be kind of like I don't know. I guess that quick expeditionary. But I we we keep that's for maritime threats though. This is for like launching deep into True. like enemy territory. Yeah, like the Marines were going short distance fairly short distance yeah but uh, well okay well we always talk about the pacific you know maybe it seems somewhat absurd there at least at the current time but uh, maybe it's a useful long-term capability that we don't really know what its growth trajectory is but particularly how about in the european theater yeah it might make more sense in the european theater um so yeah maybe that's i mean they seem to be talking about it as a pacific thing but maybe their hedge is the european theater so yeah, maybe that maybe that is maybe that is is a key point. Here, let's let's stick with the uh, army stepping on toes here because uh, we, we're running out of time. U.S. Army wants high altitude jammer from C4SI Net. 
So Helios will be an attritable sensor mounted on a solar glide vehicle or a balloon designed to operate at 60,000 feet or above. Essentially, our question is whether we can get a pay payload light enough to, slide, to fly on this penetrating high altitude attritable platform, get close enough to place our effects on target, likely with spe special purpose electronic attack or RF enabled cyber. So here's another thing where it's just like, okay, well, we, we need something light. So I guess it doesn't fall under, you know, Air Force realm, but <laughs> we essentially want to create our own kind of like sensor network uh, to, for our own kill chains here. Is that how you're seeing it? Or you, you see this as uh, uh, something else? Yeah, I don't totally get, I mean, I suppose like the army has a need for this um, if they're sending troops in, but penetrating generally is not an army mission. Um, so it, it does seem a little bit outside of their typical realm. And yeah, the Air Force does have a tradable, uh, you know, small, small, uh, small aircraft that that actually do have, you know, RF and EW capabilities. So this is, I don't know, still trying to understand a little bit this too about the the deep sensing and why they're in that business. But um, yeah, no, it's not, that's not entirely clear. All right. The next one, we got defense contractor, our employees sentenced to, or sorry, four employees sentenced to 7 million procurement fraud scheme. Uh, so basically what was going on here is that uh, the, the goods were imported and falsely relabeled to pretend that they were made in the U.S. despite the mandate. Um, so it, it actually, they were actually getting stuff from China and relabeling them. And they were sentenced to 151 months in prison combined. So, you know, this, uh, this Buy American thing is just going to become more and more important. And we've already seen our kind of like first fraud with respect to it. But of course, it's been, we've always had Buy American provisions. And um, so they're just going to get ramped up in terms of the prevalence. But here's one scheme. It was relatively small, but yeah. You know. Yeah, I think they're also coming in the wake of the whole transdigum thing. And yeah, it just seems like it seems like these prosecutors just have no tolerance for uh, uh, for fraud. So yeah, good. Probably probably setting a little bit of a uh, you know example here, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would put Transdime in the fraud category. I mean, oh. one of them went to jail, one of them didn't. One of them was asked politely if they would return some money because they didn't do anything illegal, and these guys went to jail. Yeah, fair fair point. Okay, yeah, it's just like, well, maybe you don't agree with some of their, you know, sole source practices or whatever. Um, but but if they could know, have sent them to jail, though, they probably would have. <laughs> oh yeah, they. I don't know if you saw some of that. Uh, the the hearing on that. Yeah. Uh, like everyone in Congress was fired up. Like that's, <laughs> I guess that's one thing that people like is very understandable. You know, there's a lot of folks. Um, just like, oh well, what profit rate did you make? That sounds really high. That, you know, like that, that's like an easy one to, to lash out at. Uh, next one we got this one. I think it's going to be too difficult here. Air Force leadership needs to walk the walk in baking security into cyber software boss says. So Nick Shalon had quite a bit to say here. Uh, and I'll just read it out. I realized pretty quickly we're very far behind in cyber to a point that it was very scary when it comes to critical infrastructure and the lack of security, Shalon said. I'm actually very concerned with the Space Force starting to potentially drift away from the Air Force. It would be a really big mistake compounding the existing silos in the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the forces, fourth estate. 
even beyond uh, the service level, Shaylon said he's noticed a tendency for wings and other units to develop workarounds to solutions for their own specific hardware problems. While this is useful on a small scale, it creates larger issues. We have to be careful because if you let everybody code in vacuums, who's going to maintain it? Who is going to be sustaining it when that person moves on? Maybe I'm too blunt sometimes, but I tell people, you know, right now, JADC2 has probably zero chance of success, period, full stop, Shaylon said. So there was just, like, this was a, this was a big thing here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's getting at that there is, you know, and this kind of goes to, you know, the Army's uh, kind of software factory that they, they put together to have soldiers be able to do more coding at the edge. And I think there, there is a lot of, of work being done, you know, at the edge, like we, like you said, wings and other units are developing workarounds and stuff for their own problems. Though. So the acquisition system is not being responsive enough. I think that's the, the reason for a lot of this is the operational units do what they have to do. Uh, and when they do that, they're not always taking into account all the cybersecurity, um, you know, things that, that uh, uh, you know, that if you did it in the, in the right environment with all the right access to tools and data, you would you would probably you know secure it better and so i think what he's getting at is yeah this is it's good for small scale stuff it's good to do that because you know you want to have that capability but you need to not do it in a vacuum so i think he doesn't say it but i think he's kind of saying we need to operate on a single platform with a single architecture you know with some with some similar processes that that he's kind of put out a lot of literature on right i mean he's there is the Iron Bank, which is even used by the other services that has different containers that, that are secure, that, that have been, um, you know, have the right cybersecurity measures. And so there is, uh, you know, there's a model out there to use. And I think he's kind of saying it's not being used and there's all these silos and people are just doing their own thing. And then, then expecting it to all come together and be secure, which, you know, is pro he's probably, you know, I'm sure he's dead on that. That's, that is a really challenging thing. So, um, so I think that's, I think that's his point, um, reading into it. Uh, interesting that he really bashes the space force, <laughs> not as a word, you're in digital service. Are you, are you sure you're in digital service? I'm not so sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly what got him spun up on the uh, space force side, but, uh, but yeah, definitely he, he must be seeing some vacuums there that, that, uh, he views as really problematic because, uh, um, and I don't know if it's related to the unified data library or not, but uh, yeah, uh, I'd be curious to, I'd be curious to hear more about what he's seeing and, and what really drove him to be, you know, not that he admits his words, but, but yeah, it definitely came out strong here. So. Yeah. I wonder if he has any issues with like, uh, you know, space camp and Kobayashi Maru and some of these guys, or whether like, he's just seeing them like, being or not being able to succeed from their own institutional constraints. So, you know, it, it would seem like if those guys were kind of drifting away from his core group of software factories, then that could, I could see why that would be concerning to him. Yeah, that is true that uh, Kobayashi Miru does not, does not necessarily subscribe to his, uh, to his uh, enterprise view. And, and they use things like Pivotal and stuff like that and, and don't necessarily use platform one. So uh, that is probably part of it. Yeah. yeah I wonder, you know, you brought up the point that um, he he kind of wants this like kind of unified you know enterprise architecture that everyone adopts, and you know I can see why that would work, but I wonder if it really works at the DoD scale because I'm kind of, I I kind of 
take this view and it's a very loosely and uninformed held view that like whatever the federated version of that is, it's probably at least the better way to go in the near term because trying to boil the ocean and get everyone to like adopt this big thing. Um, and I, I get it. It looks, it feels very elegant, right? With the Iron Bank and what Platform One is doing with Iron Bank and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, and how you can just like deploy that those containers and kind of mix and match them onto any kind of platform. But I don't know what the, the reason for kind of pushback is. Maybe they just have their own processes or different ways of getting to the same place. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, there, I've talked to different, uh, you know, software engineers and there are different views on, you know, when containers that make sense and when they don't. And so, you know, I think some people view him pushing that, you know, maybe too hard for some things or making it, you know, trying to make it, you know, applicable to everything. And so, yeah, I think there are different opinions out, out there about that. And yeah, I, I don't think everybody subscribed uh, to that approach, but, but it definitely seems to me to the folks that, that have adopted it, that actually sort of, you know, got their arms around it, you know, got, got, uh, you know, got a rhythm going. They, they definitely do, you know, they do definitely do preach its praises. I mean, they, they have nothing but good things to say. So, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if he's right. But. Or it reminds me a little bit. And I think this is unfair to say uh, of Shaylon because I actually like him a lot, but um, Adam Smith said the man of system is so often enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the, sm the smallest deviation from any part of it. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them. <laughs> I just love that quote, you know, whenever someone's trying to system build and, you know, this whole thing with, with DOD enterprise architecture, that is like probably the most complex system build that there might be out there right now. Right. Oh yeah. Trying to make all that work together. And given, given how many systems have, grown up in their own way. I, I mean, that's DOD's biggest problem, right? Is so many legacy systems you have to deal with. So it's like, you know, for one thing, you'll never get to his vision because the refactoring of all the stuff that's already out there that you have to integrate is just, you know, it's too much. So, but yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a great quote. You know, gotta love Adam Smith's hand of the market or whatever. And there probably is some hand of, you know, hand of having multiple architectures that, you know, you do have some resiliency or some, you know, kind of competition of solutions, you know, to say, you know, okay, is this the right way to go? Maybe we should try other things and see if that works better. Um, but, but, you know, it'll always be, it'll always be disaggregated. I don't think we'll ever get DOD to be completely on one, one single architecture because there's just, it's just, yeah, like you said, such a behemoth. Yeah. But it's also, that's probably a fragile state to be in as well, potentially. Yeah. 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 I don't know. But Adam Smith, you know, that the whole thing that or that quote actually came from the theory of moral sentiment written about 20 years or 15 years before um, his whole economic work. So, oh, okay. it, yeah, that, well, that's why I love it the most, because the, the, the economic framework comes from a moral framework about, you know, human relationships with each other. And so that's, you know, I think when we I think too often you have, you know, folks from like the Chicago school or whatever that look at economics and they're all just like, oh, you know, efficiency theory, market efficiency theory is why we, the reason we like markets. And efficiency is actually, in my view, I guess, probably the same as Adam Smith's view is that it's an offshoot of kind of like a moral foundation for ordering society by which each individual on his own, you know, has property rights, but 
you know, brings his own skills and talent to bear for the service of others. So anyway, that's a little diatribe. Great. And, and that's all we got time for. So we'll leave you there. Matt, thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.